grab your Bible, Matthew 21. We're going to divert from our normal study in Proverbs that we've been going through. And if you're new to Calvary, anytime that we're together, we're traveling through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But it's Palm Sunday, and we're going to celebrate Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We're going to look at it this year from Matthew's account in chapter 21. And so what we'll do is we'll dive in and read, well, we'll read first and then we'll dive in and we'll see what God will say to us. So we're going to read verses 1 through 17, Matthew 21. If you're there with me, say amen. Amen. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sat him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude says, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all who brought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and, the, and, and he healed them. Notice that verse 14 is amazing. We'll camp out there later on. Verse 15 But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Beth to Bethany and he lodged there. Father, we thank you today for your word, for the text that you've put before us, Lord. And as we read it, Lord, and and we dive into it, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say to us by your Holy Spirit from your text, Lord God, your word. And I pray that you would remove the cares of this life and the burdens of this world from our hearts and minds now. Lord, I pray that you would remove the distractions from the room. I pray that, Lord, you would push the enemy far back, that your perimeter would be set by your angels with their swords drawn, that this moment, this hour, this place would be a safe place of freedom where we can just rejoice in you and hear what you would say to us, Lord. And we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have this scene And as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, 
And if you look at all of the Gospels, as we've done throughout the years now of doing this together, we've seen it from all four directions. There's a lot actually happening as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. The preceding chapters kind of show this scene of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. He's preaching and teaching. There's parables that he's giving. Um, he's teaching on things such as servant leadership. Blind men are, are, getting, uh, are receiving their sight. In fact, at the end of chapter uh, 20, we actually see that in chapter 20, the, the verses before where I started reading in your very text. In verse 32, these blind men came to Jesus. Jesus says, what would you have me to do for you? And they said, Lord, that our eyes may be open. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, if you notice. And immediately they received their sight. And they followed him, which is an amazing verse just in and of itself, that these men who had been blind possibly their whole life, we don't know, but for some time their eyes are open. The first thing they see is Jesus. And what do they do? They follow him on his road to Jerusalem. That's amazing to, to be blind, to open your eyes, to see this typical looking Jewish guy, because we know from the scriptures that Jesus didn't stand out in the crowd physically. Because Judas had to identify him with the kiss the night he was betrayed. He just looked like any typical Jewish dude in the first century look, okay? Um, he doesn't look at all like any of the pictures that you've seen or you may have hanging in your house at home. Um, people portray him the way they want him to look. But he looked like a typical Jewish dude. They open their eyes. They see him. He's probably smiling because he's Jesus. He's in, uh, and they followed him. This is amazing. And what we know is that there was a crowd that gathered in Bethany because Jesus stayed in Bethany overnight before he got up the next morning to go into Jerusalem. The other gospels tell us that. And there was a crowd there in Bethany because they wanted to see both Jesus and Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So they all showed up to see Jesus and this dude that used to be dead sitting there hanging out with him. You know, this is amazing. Jesus got former blind people and former dead people and former all other kind of people just hanging out with him. You catch that scene? Jesus is amazing. Jesus is where real people want to be. And we'll get into that later. Religious people can't stand him. But people who are lost, who are hurting, who, who, who had messed up lives and and, and all of that, and you can fill in all the blanks, broken marriages and, and, and wayward children and, and failed businesses and, and all kinds of hopes and dreams shattered. And then they look up and see Jesus and all hope comes to life again. And so they want to be where Jesus is. So, so Bethany is the hangout spot for Jesus. And, and you read through the rest of Passion Week, you begin to see that. And we'll come back to that later. Um, but as he got close to Jerusalem, close to the region of Jerusalem where Bethany was, as he was drawing close, Mark's gospel tells us that something happened. In fact, on the screen, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 33 says it this way. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. So Jesus is out in front of his disciples. He's leading the pack kind of if you get it. You catch the scene? And they were amazed we're not really sure what amazed them. Maybe it was his pace. His, you know, he's moving up. I mean, they're trekking miles, um, you know, going upward because it's always up to Jerusalem. And I, I imagine sometimes when I'm on mountains, I always pull my iPhone out and check our, um, you know, elevation above sea level. And then I compare it to where we live here on the ground. And it's, it's amazing how you can wind sometimes and not see how far. You just did a thousand mile elevation climb sometime and didn't even realize it. Jesus has been walking upward for a while towards Jerusalem. He's out in front of them 
And it says, and as they followed, notice they were afraid. They see something and it makes them afraid. Then Jesus took the 12 aside. Jesus realized, let me talk to the boys for a moment. And he reminds them again of what's going to happen. And he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Notice in verse 33 on the screen, it says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is not good news, by the way. We're going up to Jerusalem, guys. The son, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. The betrayer's there looking at him. He'll be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. That's the good news part, right? And Jesus is reminding them, we're going to Jerusalem. Listen, I want you to understand, okay, this is what's about to happen. Of course, they don't get it because if you go read Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, they immediately start asking Jesus about who could be the greatest. <laughs> um, nobody cares what Jesus is about to go through. But this is all happening on the scene. And I think that they are amazed and they became afraid because Jesus is focused so much to the point that he realizes he's walking into his death. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. He won't go back to Galilee with the boys again. He's going, well, he will meet them there after his resurrection. But in his human uh, ministry, he will not go to Jerusalem again. This is it. He's going to die for their sins, your sins, and my sins. And he is warning them of this. And his face is fixed, as the Old Testament said, like Flint, on his mission that he came to fulfill. Jesus wouldn't turn back for anything. And here's the crazy thing you got to catch. Jesus knew you before the foundation of the world. He knew he would die for us when we could care nothing about him. Nothing could stop him from going to Jerusalem and dying because he loves you. This is the Jesus that we serve. And we know the scripture says there's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. There's no other mediator between God and man but Jesus Christ. There's no other name in heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in none other, the Bible says, because he's the one who was willing to lay his life down and qualified to do it so that you could have salvation and I could have salvation and eternal life. So Jesus is focused on the mission and he goes ahead of his disciples and they get to um, Bethany, we know, and he spent the night there in Bethany and uh, according to John's gospel. Okay, y'all with me? So now we pick it up in verse one here and we begin to say, see what happens and it says when they drew near Jerusalem. Now, the they is this crowd that's traveling on the road to Jerusalem for the great feast. So it would be Jesus. It would be the 12. It would be many, many other people that were following, former dead people and, and blind people and all who just love Jesus now and those who are getting to know him because they're just on the road traveling with him. It would be a festive season. They're all headed up to Jerusalem. One of the things I want you to think about for a moment, if you were alive on the morning of Palm Sunday, you wouldn't have expected anything out of the normal unless you were one of those weird Bible prophecy believing people who believe scripture enough to look at scripture and evaluate the world around you based on it, okay? Those weird people uh, who, who tend to do that like Pastor Kevin, I guess. Um, think about Simeon and, and Anna who worshiped a baby in the temple 
and realized that they were worshiping God. And Simeon says, man, now I can die. God has allowed me to see the consolation of Israel. Y'all remember that? When Jesus was taken into the temple to be dedicated? Or, or the wise men, the entourage of Magi from Babylon who showed up with amazing amounts of wealth and took a long journey to give gold and spices to a child just because they saw a star. Um, all of these things that began to unfold. And so one of the things I'm, I want you to understand is that if you were alive that morning, you might not have thought to yourself, this is an amazing day. But the first thing we need to consider is that this was a day unlike any other because Jesus was fulfilling all sorts of prophecy on this morning trip into Jerusalem. First, notice it says, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to, the, uh, to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, which is at the, uh, the, the east side of the, of the Mount of Olives, Jesus would climb that mountain. Before that, he would set some things in order. Now, first, before we even get to, the, to my favorite character in the story, which is the donkey, because he's the only one that obeys, before we get there, we have to consider something. Jesus pauses as he's about to go over the mountain and down into Jerusalem. And see, for Jesus, he realizes what most people there are missing is that a prophecy was given by an angel to a prophet named Daniel 483 years before this morning, saying that 70 weeks are determined, Daniel, for your people, for the holy city, the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, to end all prophecy to, to uh, bring in, to deal with all the sin and transgressions that have occurred, Daniel chapter 9, and to usher in peace and to anoint the Most High who is the Messiah. Seventy weeks are determined. And if you've never read through the Bible, that's in Daniel 9. Those weeks are weeks of years. So 70 prophetic weeks of years are determined for all of this to happen. And we, there will be 69 of those weeks would pass and then Messiah would show up. And so on this morning, Jesus is concluding the 69th week. In fact, it was 40, 483 years prior or 173,880 days before this where Daniel was told that on the, the day that the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah would show up, those 69 weeks or those 483 years or those 173,880 days would pass and then Messiah should show up. And then he would be cut off, but not for himself. And the cut off means he would die. Or as we know, he would be crucified, but not for himself the prophecy was given to Daniel because he is without sin, but for all of us. You catch it? Which means that you could have taken a calendar and a calculator and known that he was going to be arriving on this morning. And Jesus shows up. Listen to me for a minute. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem on the day that he was supposed to fulfilling the timing of all of that. And it's amazing for us to even begin to fathom that. And then it gets better. I'm kind of backwards in my notes here, but let's keep rolling. So notice, next, um, 
the prophecy that he fulfills next is not just the Daniel prophecy, which is the prophecy that basically uh, sums up all of prophecy. It gives us a picture of everything that's going to happen. By the way, critics of the Bible, they can't stand the book of Daniel. They said there's no way that the book of Daniel could have been written when it was written because it's too accurate. It predicts world history um, in, a, in like no other book ever written. And then they dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you know what they found in it? The book of Daniel, written in, in, in part Hebrew and part Aramaic, a, a form of Aramaic that only existed during the time that it was supposed to have been written in, and it was dated for that time, proving that Daniel received his prophecy from the Lord and wrote it ahead of time. Isn't that wonderful? So Jesus shows up in the time that he was supposed to show up. But not only that, as we go through this, Jesus didn't just show up uh, on time. He's kind of showing up in prophetic type too. What do you mean? Well, John's gospel tells us, y'all bear with me, that Jesus arrived in Bethany before the triumphal entry is what we call this, Palm Sunday, six days prior to the Passover, okay? If you do the math, that would have placed him there on the 9th of the first month of the year because Passover occurs the first month of the year. Y'all with me? So he would have showed up on the 9th, which would have been a Saturday. And we know by John's gospel that he spent the night in Beth, uh, Bethany. We know that Jewish days start in the evening. So he would have showed up on the 9th and then it would have turned on the 10th while he's hanging out there in Bethany. He would have got up the morning of the 10th of the first month of the year, which is Nisan, and rode into Jerusalem. And why is that significant? It's wonderful because in the law, God speaks of this to the nation of Israel in a very special way when he gave them the first Passover. Y'all with me? All right, Exodus chapter 12 on the screen. I want you to see it. I don't want you to flip there because I want you to get lost, but it should be on the screen. And you write a note and look at it later. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 6. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months, and that shall be the first month of the year to you. In other words, God is about to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt in a very powerful way. And he's saying that I want your calendar from now on to reflect that this month will be your first month. Verse three, he says, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, notice, check it out. On the 10th day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So on the 10th day of the first month, every year, every family gets a lamb. But notice this, and if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. In other words, the lamb symbolizes something special, so we don't want to have any waste. There ain't going to be no leftovers, because God says this represents something. So if you got a little family and you can't consume a lamb, then you got to connect with your neighbors until you got enough people to consume a whole lamb at one meal. You with me? There ain't no leftovers. We ain't carrying no lamb sandwiches out of Egypt or none of that. You eat the lamb, all of it, consume it because it, it's a symbol of something, okay? Now, verse 5 on the screen says, your lamb, notice, shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, without blemish means it must be perfect, no flaws, okay? 
no broken bones. You can't have no one-eyed lamb or three-legged lamb or a lamb missing an ear, none of that stuff. It had to be a perfect lamb. Notice verse 6 says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat. Now, y'all remember the story. This was the Passover. The death angel came by that night. Y'all remember? So the Passover actually happens, if you will, over the evening of the 11th of Nisan. So on the 10th at twilight, they would kill the, the lamb. And then technically as the 11th would begin, the death angel's passing through and he's killing all the firstborn in every household that refused to, by faith and obedience to God, take the lamb, kill the lamb, eat the lamb, and apply the blood to the doorpost and the lentil, which would be the form of a cross. If you were to look at the two doorposts and the lentil being painted top and bottom is what they would do, you would literally look at a house and see a, a, a kind of a form of a cross there on the door. But you follow me? This is what they were instructed to do. And so here's Jesus, listen, at the beginning of his ministry on his baptism, John said, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1. So here is Jesus then riding into Jerusalem on the morning of the 10th of the first month of the year, presenting himself to the house of Israel as the Passover lamb. And he will do that until the 10th, uh, I'm sorry, until the 14th of this same month, which is just a few days later, where he will be crucified in the house of Israel. And it's such a wonderful thing because Jesus is the Passover lamb. His blood, listen, would be shed for the sins of the world. So that, check it out, anyone today who will by faith literally apply the blood of Jesus by faith to their own life. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 2 or chapter 1 verse 2 that we have been, if you will, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's symbolic, but we have literally been sprinkled somehow with the blood of Jesus Christ over our lives in the sense that because we've placed faith in his finished work on the cross, we, listen, have been saved. So therefore, death has to pass over me. I can't, I, can't be, I can't die, according to Jesus. As soon as the breath leaves my body, I'm alive and well with the Lord Jesus for all eternity until he resurrects my body, and then that'll be back together. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Yes, Jesus comes, listen, on the day he was supposed to show up, fulfilling the type and the picture of the Passover lamb on Passover in Jerusalem. And it's so amazing to begin to think about all of these things that Jesus is doing. Can you imagine it? It's hard to imagine all that is happening. Listen, really quick. I want to share um, with you, because there's more to this than that. But one of the things I want to point out is that there is so many prophecies that point to Christ, to the Messiah. There's over 300 prophecies pointing to his, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his return. But so many prophecies, over 300 directly related to what we're looking at here and Jesus coming and dying. And uh, I want to give you a few of them. I'm going to give you about eight or nine. Y'all with me? Yes, you should know these. Uh, Micah 5.2 talks about the fact that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. 
Isaiah 7.14 speaks of the fact that he would be born, born uh, of a virgin. That's one of the verses that says that. Um, Zechariah 11.12 says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We know that Psalm 22 says that he would be mocked. Um, John 3 says he would be crucified. Uh, he would be pierced, Psalm 22 tells us. He would die with the wicked but be buried with the, with the rich, Isaiah 53.9 tells us. Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 22 also tells us that he would be betrayed by a friend and that his garments would be divided and that they would cast lots for his clothing. And that's just a few. I think I gave you maybe nine. Now, there was a mathematician who was also an astronomer said that the chances of Jesus filling just 800 of all the prophecies, excuse me, that's eight of all the prophecies that are mentioned of him is a mathematic number that goes beyond my mathematical capability, but he illustrates it this way. He says it would be like taking the whole state of Texas and filling it up with silver dollars two feet high and then blindfolding a man and letting him walk across the state and he has to pick the coin that was marked by you on the first try. That's how, how uh, crazy it is to even fathom a man fulfilling all of these things. Yet Jesus is born to a virgin in Bethlehem, worshiped by angels and men from the east. He, he grows up living a perfect life and He's baptized. There's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he lives this perfect life, uh, healing the lame, uh, cleansing the lepers, giving sight to the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, fulfilling all of these miracles that the Messiah is, to, is supposed to fulfill, showing up in Jerusalem on the day that Daniel said the Messiah would arrive, okay, be able to ride in on a donkey, which we'll look at in a moment, have them cry, Hosanna, have them crucify him on the day he's supposed to be crucified, of course, rise on the third day and fulfill all of these prophecies. And how is he able to do it? Because he is God. And he is able to do exactly what needs to be done for us to be able to see and understand and worship him for who he is. And if Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies perfectly, then you can rest assured that the prophecies about his coming for his bride will be fulfilled and his establishing his kingdom will be fulfilled and our eternal place with him will be fulfilled. And we love that. So we worship Jesus for who he is. Now let's look at this scene really quick because we got to cover some ground still. So it says here, I think I left off in verse one. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And, and again, it says all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus sends his disciples in to get the donkey and bring them. First of all, notice that you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So it's a female donkey, most likely the mother of this colt. Y'all with me? Jesus says, bring them. 
The other gospels tell us specifically that he sits on the cult, the younger one, and rides in, and nobody's ever sat on this cult before. But I like the tenderness of Jesus because he allows the natural process. He doesn't, if you will, stress his creation out. He blesses even his creation by allowing both of them to come together so it's comfort to the cult because mom is still there. Isn't that wonderful? That's just something that Jesus didn't have to do because he's God. But he did it. He blessed the cults and the cults' mother. They're still together. And he says, you're going to go and you're going to bring it. If anybody says anything to you, just say, hey, the Lord have need of him. Which is interesting to me. Because how did he pull this off? Was it prearranged? On one of his previous trips to Jerusalem, did he say, hey, you know, look, make sure that you, you have this donkey out there for me next time I come to town. You know, maybe, some people think that. Or maybe the family that owned the donkey was one of those weird prophecy, Bible prophecy believing families. And they realized, hey, according to Daniel, he should be showing up. Let's leave the the, the donkey and the cult out there by the fence. You know, maybe that's what it was, okay? Um, But I think what we can rest in is the fact that he's God, so he knew everything that was going on, and he made arrangements in whatever way he did supernaturally, and this, these Family just says, okay, the Lord has need. Take the donkey. But I think there are families like that in the room. That's why I don't think it's so far-fetched. How do I know? Well, I keep finding people in this church who simply figure, well, I guess the Lord has need of this car that we're not driving every day. Give it to the family that don't have one. Or, you know, hey, the Lord has need of our house. Why don't we have a fellowship here? Why don't we invite people over to dinner and and fellowship and pray with them and stuff like that? Hey, the Lord has need of me. I'm going to show up at the church and serve, you know. Or the Lord has need of me on Monday because it's hurting people on my job. And, Lord, you see them and, and and you just start praying for them. I don't know. The Lord has need of us. He doesn't have to use us, but he desires for us to be a part of what he's doing. And so they, he said, hey, just tell them the Lord has need and they'll let you bring them. And so they did it and they found it according to the other gospels just as the way he, he said it. And it was all done that prophecy could be fulfilled. I want to read you this quotation here in verse 5 from the original prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold. Your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's riding on this young donkey that nobody's ever ridden on before. And what we got to catch as we go into this is this is quoted and the people will be excited and they will sing. But the, the reality is they're missing a lot of what's going on here. The donkey understands it's my creator and he just chills out. And, and listen, if you've ever ridden on a donkey before, or maybe I should say ever tried to do it, it ain't easy. But to ride on one that no one has ever sat on and ridden before is not something that you would typically find that would work out well for you. You're trying to go to Jerusalem and, and you end up in Jericho because that donkey's not going, it just wouldn't work out. But the donkey rides Jesus right into Jerusalem. He's lowly and riding on a donkey having salvation with him. And we got to catch this scene. So there's two pictures. There's Jesus riding into Jerusalem lowly with salvation here. And then in Revelation 19, it's Jesus as a conquering king riding on a white stallion returning with destruction in his eyes and, and his wrath. 
Okay, you, fo- you follow that. So now there's lowliness, there's, there's salvation is with him, there's opportunity for salvation, but he'll be rejected by the leaders of the nation. When he returns, he is destroying a world who has rejected him and, and he is coming to overthrow Satan and his kingdom and establish his own kingdom. So he came lowly the first time, but when he comes back, it ain't gonna look like this. And we call this the triumphal entry, but really his return is the triumphal entry. This one is triumphal because he's fulfilling all of the prophecies that spoke of him ahead of time. Let's keep going. Y'all doing all right? So notice verse six, the disciples went and did as he had commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on him and set him on it. And then notice a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. So now the crowd has grown. People are taking their own clothes and putting them on the road. Others are cutting down branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. They're very excited. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out saying, listen, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, first of all, the song being said is not uh, shall I say, um, uh, uh, unique to, pass, to, to this particular story because they would often sing that on Passover. In fact, the priest uh, uh, would even get involved in this and they would sing and they would make a, a ceremonial thing out of it. What is unique is that on this Passover, they're singing this song to a man who is entering Jerusalem. You catch me? Because the Passover before, they sung these songs. And, and, but not, this year is different because they are attributing it to a man. And it says, Hosanna to the son of David. And even though the whole crowd didn't fully realize what was going on, they in their hearts were hoping for Messiah because they wanted to be free from the rule of Rome. Hear me out. They're hoping for Messiah, but in their hearts and minds, they've kind of got the, the, either the wrong Messiah or the wrong timing of Messiah because they're missing the scripture that points to the fact that the Messiah had to suffer for the people first. How do we know this? Jesus told the guys on the road to Emmaus, he says, shouldn't the Messiah have had to suffer? And he took them through the Old Testament scriptures to show them that. Are you with me? So they're, they're singing Hosanna, but what are they doing there in their hearts? They want a man who will overthrow the Roman government and lift Israel to being the place of rule in the world because they were oppressed. They were oppressed by Rome. They were oppressed by the corrupt, which I'll show you in a minute, religious rulers of, of Israel. And they wanted someone to free them. And so they're excited about the possibilities of Jesus being that. So they're singing this song to him. And then a few days later, many of them will say, crucify him, crucify him. He ain't who we thought he was. Or he ain't, he ain't do what we wanted him to do. And this is what I told you, even the time we live in right now, the world is excited. They want a leader. They want a king. Europe right now would love someone who could fully unite them. The world wants someone who can save them from the, the craziness and the oppression that's going on in this world. And the world is, their hearts are ripe for a false messiah, a false king to show up who will 
unite the Roman Empire from the past back together again. And all the world will wonder after this man, according to Revelation 19. They'll sing new songs to him. They'll say, who is like him? Who can make war against him? Revelation 19. Uh, excuse me, Revelation uh, 13. They will sing of Antichrist. And he will perform miracles and they will be amazed at him. And so here, they're singing these songs, and it says in verse 10, look at it with me, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude says, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The whole city was moved. There's an interesting word there for moved. It means to, be, to, uh, to cause men to tremble or quake for fear or be agitated within the mind. Um, it's only used a few times in scripture and it, it speaks of times when men are really, uh, their, their bodies are literally quaking with fear or with amazement. And so the whole city's moved at this coming of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem. Now, notice it says in verse 12, because we got a little time left. It says, then Jesus went into the temple, the temple of God, and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, I want to pause there because this, this, this thing we're about to see now is this religious racket that is really ripping people off and oppressing people even, even more. Notice Jesus drove out those who brought and sold in the temple. What are they buying and selling? Well, they're selling sacrifices. You read through the Gospels there, those who, at the end of the verse, the seats of those who sold doves. You see that? So they're selling doves. They're selling lambs. They're selling sacrifices. Why? Because there's a racket happening. What would actually happen to people often is that they would bring their sacrifice. They would travel to Jerusalem ready to sacrifice, ready to worship, and they would bring their sacrifice to the priest to have their sacrifice inspected because their sacrifice had to be without spot, without blemish, had to be perfect. They're all excited. The kids got their little lamb. They got it on the 10th. You know, they've had it to the 14th. They're ready to get it sacrificed. They've had it in their homes. And, and they're ready. And then they show up and the priest is like, oh, I'm so sorry. We've, we found a blemish here. And I'm sorry, but we, according to the law, we can't allow this sacrifice to be used. And they're all broken, you know, because they had invested in that sacrifice. And so the priest would say, well, look, don't worry. You know, you're in luck. Right over at that booth, we have pre-inspected sacrifices. They are already pre-approved by the priest for the, the, the feast. And you can buy one of those for a low, low price of much more than you paid for yours. Because <laughs> they were being marked up. And so the people would then, they would have to go and spend extra money for a sacrifice that they didn't think they were going to have to spend. And especially for the people who they're excited because it's their first time in Jerusalem for the feast. They couldn't wait to get there and they're getting ripped off. Now, we can't even stay at the Holiday Inn now. We got to go out town to the Roach Motel because we had to spend our money <laughs> on a sacrifice that we didn't expect to have to spend it on. Okay, so you got that racket going on. Marked up sacrifices that the priests have. And overturned the tables notice of those, uh, of the money changers. Well, why are there money changers in the temple? Well, if you got to buy a new sacrifice, you can't use the money you traveled with. Because most likely it's Gentile money, Roman money. It's been through the, 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 the unclean places. So you have to get temple money. 
that's already blessed. So you have to exchange it. So you have to take your Roman money and exchange it for a temple shekel. Oh, and guess what? We, there is a exchange rate. We want to make sure we got to disclose that to you. There is an exchange rate that you got to pay to do that. And so there's another markup. By the time these people got the sacrifice, they were, their hearts were tainted with the corruption of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. You catch that, right? And so what's Jesus' heart? Well, he drove them out and he turned over their tables. And he said in verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now hear me out for a moment. There's something that actually takes place when you take advantage of people in the process of worship. Those ministers and ministries who beg for money, who constantly stick a plate in people's face, who make it about money, actually bring a reproach against the Lord. They actually kind of, it's mentioned over in First um, Samuel because, uh, not in my notes, Eli's sons. They were ripping off the people as they came to worship at the tabernacle, and it was an approach against, against God. It made people loathe the sacrifice. It tainted, their experience was tainted because of it. It becomes a hindrance and a distraction, and so people can no longer worship sometimes with the right heart. Okay, we know scripture says that there should be money used to finance the ministry, but it shouldn't be used by leadership in such a way where it becomes a distraction or it taints the heart of those who want to come and actually enjoy the worship of God. You understand what I'm saying? And so Jesus is, is heartbroken over this. And so he turns all this stuff over and he runs them all out, if you will. Because this is what his heart is, that people would have a house of prayer, a place to come and worship the Lord. You follow me? Now, here's the crazy thing. We can see that in Israel with the corruption of the priests. But sometimes I think we fail to realize that if Jesus was to walk into many churches today, Christian churches, he would be just as heartbroken about what he would see going on. It's amazing. Notice in verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now check it out. Jesus clean, cleanses out the corruption and then something that never happens happens. The blind and the lame, people who were looked down upon by the religious community of Israel because they would say that they must have had some sin, they're cursed. The blind and the lame now are able to come into the temple where Messiah is and he is able to minister to them and they are being healed by him. You catch the scene? This is an amazing thing because look, this is, this is like a preview of what things would be like in the kingdom when Jesus establishes his kingdom for a thousand years and where all the world will come and worship him. Jesus is in the temple receiving those who are hurting and in need of him and he is ministering to them. And see, today, you got a lot of people who are doing false ministry who are causing people to be disheartened and, and distracted in the process of worship. They cause you, they, they beg you to send them your money. You know, you, you make a donation and they'll send you some sweaty prayer cloth that they laid on as if that prayer cloth is going to help you get closer to Jesus. They're going to send you some water from Jerusalem. 
as if it's got some special anointing on it that you need, okay? Um, they charge people to get into healing crusades where they ain't healing nobody. They ain't healed nobody of COVID, so they wasn't healing nobody to begin with because their ministry is fake, okay? And this stuff Jesus can't stand, yet they got people writing checks and going online and donating and all emotional over some religious uh, phony ministers, false prophets that are distracting people and, and causing people to even sometimes be disheartened. Um, they wear certain clothes and, and park in certain places and sit in certain places within the, 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 the congregation and you can't approach them and, and, and they are making themselves out to be something that they are not. And so here Jesus drives that kind of foolishness out of the temple and when they get out, then Jesus and those who need him can go in. And this is the thing we need to understand that the ministry of the Lord is a lot simpler than man makes it out to be. Man complicates it, man can corrupt it, but Jesus just wants to be able to minister through people who humble themselves and just serve. And that's what we want to see even in the church today. And so the blind and the lame came in the temple and he healed them because Jesus is the one that does ministry. You know, people are just people. We, we show up and serve because we want to love the Lord and we want to be used of the Lord. But the Lord is the one that does the work, even through the, the people who do ministry today. So verse 15, I got to try to bring it to the close. Now, here's how religious people respond to that, by the way. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw, notice the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Well, who does dude think he is, first of all? If from, you know, some carpenter from Galilee, all of a sudden he show up. You know, he ain't dressed right. He ain't went to our schools, you know, to get our degree. You know, he ain't wearing no priestly robes and all this kind of stuff. He got dirty feet from Galilee, hanging out with these fishermen, you know, and, and, and he coming here thinking that he, he's somebody and all these people now trusting in him. We got to do something about that, you know, because and, and he just took our racket and destroyed it. He didn't cut the bottom line, you know, so now they're angry. Wait a minute now. The people now are trusting in him. We can't benefit. We can't profit from this. He got to go. You follow me? This is what's happening here. And said to him, do you hear what these are saying? they're challenging him because they don't believe in who he is. They're kind of saying, look, these people are worshiping you and you need to shut them up. And Jesus said to them, yes, I like that. Matthew wrote well. First of all, Jesus saying, yeah, I hear what they're saying. They're worshiping me because I'm God. And then he says, and have you never heard, read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. And I need you to understand something. In this section of scripture, we see Jesus fulfilling divine prophecy. We see him uh, now even exercising worship, if you will, um, uh, or having divine authority over worship and allowing the people to worship him on the road. And now even here, he does the same by allowing them to cry out as he's in the temple. And the religious, uh, religious leaders are indignant over it. And Jesus quotes scripture to them that shows them that he understands exactly what's going on. And then in verse 17, as we close now, 
It says, then he, Jesus, notice this, left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And now I want you to read the rest of the Passion Week um, this week. Pick your gospel, read all four. What you're going to find is Jesus is going to lodge himself every evening back in Bethany. He's going to go into the house of Israel, into the city of Jerusalem every day. He will present himself to the priests in a certain way. In other words, they will challenge him in the temple every day. But then when it's over, because they have rejected him as Messiah, he goes back and lodges with his friends in Bethany until the day in which he is crucified. And so this is just to begin this week of passion. I, I pray that you continue to read all week long, read the parables, read the challenges of the priest, read Jesus' response until we come again on Sunday and celebrate his resurrection. But this is our Lord. He is amazing in the text. He is amazing in how he ministered here on earth. And the promises of his coming for us are still ahead. And we're looking forward to that. Amen. But we're out of time. So let's stand. Let's sing together. Um, bow your heads. Let me pray as you stand to your feet. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today, Lord. We thank you for your son who you sent to die on the cross for us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray that you would be with us. Uh, throughout this week, Lord God, that you would draw us into a deeper relationship with you. Let our hearts be on you and on the lost, um, Lord God, as we pray for those who don't know you to come to salvation, Lord. I pray that you would move mightily in our lives this week, wherever we are, Lord, our homes, our cars, our workplaces, classrooms, wherever, Lord God, until we meet together again. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.